Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Jewish Studies, a podcast channel of New Books Network. I'm your host, Schneer Zalman Newfield. The Hasidic community in the Williamsburg section of Brooklyn is famously one of the most separatist, intensely religious, and politically savvy groups of people in the entire United States. Less known is how the community survived in one of the toughest parts of New York City during an era of steep decline, only to later resist and also participate in the unprecedented gentrification of the neighborhood. In A Fortress in Brooklyn, Race, Real Estate, and the Making of Hasidic Williamsburg, published by Yale University Press in 2021, Nathaniel Deutsch and Michael Kasper unravel the fascinating history of how a group of determined Holocaust survivors encountered, shaped, and sometimes fiercely opposed the urban processes that transformed their gritty neighborhood from white flight and the construction of public housing to rising crime, divestment of city services, and ultimately extreme gentrification. Nathaniel Deutsch is professor of history at the University of California, Santa Cruz. I'm so glad his new book has brought him to our program. Welcome, Nathaniel. Thank you so much, Salman. So to begin with, could you tell us a little bit about your background and what led you to write this work? Well, uh, answering the question about my background is pretty complicated, um, but I'll say um, that part of it that brought me to this work, um, that, let's say that's relevant for, for, for the book, um, is that I did have some, um, some experience and knowledge of, of Satmar and other Hasidic groups. The, 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 the group that um, we focus on in the book is called Satmar. Um, and it's connected to a town in what's now Romania, but previously was part of what's known as Greater Hungary. So Hungary used to be a lot bigger than it is now. And um, uh, this is a town where this particular community that um, after World War II settled in uh, Williamsburg, Brooklyn. Um, uh, and I, I had some knowledge, experience. Um, in addition, and this was crucial for writing the book, in the 1990s, I moved to Williamsburg. And so I lived in Williamsburg from the 1990s until the end of the, of, uh, until around 2008, 2009. And so uh, while I was there, I uh, became curious about um, the Hasidic part of the neighborhood. I didn't live in the Hasidic part. I lived in an, another part um, known as the North Side. And my co-author, Michael Casper, um, was uh, arrived also, I don't think he was living 
actually in Williamsburg, but very near Williamsburg in, um, in the 2000s. And we were put together uh, by, by uh, someone I think we knew in common. And uh, initially, we're not going to write a book, we're going to write something shorter. But over a period of time, we realized that there was really uh, an important story to be told um, in, in, in a number of ways, important in a number of ways, I should say. And we became very engrossed in the story and in researching it and spent over 10 years doing that research. And A Fortress in Brooklyn is the result of it. Right. And um, you talk in the book about uh, the parallels uh, between the Puritan founders and the Satmers in Williamsburg. Um, and uh, what are the, um, the possible connections between these two groups of people? Yeah, so the book actually starts out with um, with that comparison, and on the one hand, it seems like a, a, a very distant one, maybe even far fetched. Um, what could um, you know Puritan Christians from uh, from uh, England, um, you know, hundreds of years ago, have to do with Hasidim, who are members? Hasidism is a uh, Pietistic Jewish movement that originated in. Uh, Eastern Europe in the uh, 1700s has a relationship to the Kabbalah or Kabbalah, which is a form of Jewish mysticism, but also to other um, aspects of, of Eastern European Jewish culture and, and more broadly what we would call kind of early modern Jewish culture and society. Um, uh, and over time, uh, it developed a, a, a charismatic leadership um, in which leaders were uh, located in different towns throughout Eastern Europe. Um, with followers in their towns, but also in other communities where they would often go to visit or the, their followers would come to their towns, their home bases to, to visit and, and so on. Um, what, might, what could those Eastern European pietistic Jews have in common with these Puritans from England? Well, for one thing, um, one could argue that from a history of religion's point of view, they, they, are in, they, are, they both participate in a kind of broader pietistic um, kind of phenomenon, the notion that one should uh, create communities that live a more intensely religious um, lifestyle, you know, um, with charismatic leaders in many of these communities, prophecy was, or some kind of prophetic um, voice was, was important. Um, Often with ascetic practices, with different kinds of social norms that set them apart from the broader communities in which they were, were living. Um, so in that sense, you might, you would, you know, there are certain parallels, but in certain ways, even at least as importantly, is the idea that they came to the United States from elsewhere. And in the United States, or I shouldn't say the United States, in the Puritan case, of course, the United States didn't exist, but they came to North America, either in the colonial period or in, in, in the case of the Samar Hasidim and the other Hungarian Hasidim that joined them in Williamsburg after World War II. Um, and they, they tried to create new pietistic communities that were on the one hand in the world, whether it was colonial New England or in the case of the Hasidim in Brooklyn, but separate from the world at the same time and trying to lead a kind of life that was not only uh, a holy life for their community, but, and this is key, that could serve as a model for others and ideally, ideally bring about some kind of larger redemption 
And uh, so I think that in all of those ways, there are these, these interesting uh, parallels. One other thing I would say is that on the one hand, these are, these are, these are communities that are very almost otherworldly in their piety. But at the same time, if you look at the history of the Puritans and of Sotmar, they're very practical and very savvy in, in, in some really fundamental ways that allow them to establish colonies, communities, and to thrive even as they are separatist and otherworldly in certain ways. So this interesting, the last thing I'll say, it's very interesting dynamic tension, and I would say power that comes from being uh, emphasizing holiness and practicality. And it seems like those two things should be at tension, and they are. But when, but but human beings are good at living with contradictions. <laughs> right, right. Well, that that that's really interesting. Uh, speaking of historical comparisons, you contrast the immigration history of Hasidim in America with the better known story of Jewish immigration. Uh, to America in the early nineteen, in the late eighteen, early nineteen hundreds, that was famously um, uh, 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 described by Irving Howe uh, in his book uh, *World of Our Fathers*. Um, what are the key differences between these two waves of Jewish immigrants to America? Right. So, um, you know, history is. Is, uh, is the way that we describe in, in writing, typically, right, uh, the past. And there's lots of different ways of describing the past. Um, and there are narratives, there are stories that became popular about the past. And the pop- most popular narrative or history of, of Jews in America fo- tends to focus on the big waves of immigration that arrived beginning in the 1880s from Eastern Europe. It's not that there weren't Jews prior to that from from the German-speaking lands, or even uh, Sephardi Jews from from the Iberian Peninsula, but in terms of the numbers, in terms of their impact, in all sorts of different ways, it was the waves of immigration from the Russian Empire, from Romania, uh, and from the Austro-Hungarian Empire. That's that, and and actually also from the Ottoman Empire. Much smaller numbers, but also around the same time, a little bit later, but but they were very significant in establishing the the Sephardi. Uh, communities in the United States and some of the same places too, the Lower East Side of New York, the Bronx, and so on. So we have these Jews, um, and 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 it's the Yiddish-speaking um, uh, Jews from Eastern Europe that are the, both in terms of their numbers and in terms of the attention from historians that that really have gotten most of the focus. Who arrived? Many of them came from Hasidic families, or they came from what's called. Uh, uh, you know, yeshivish families or litvish families, that is, they, they weren't Hasidim, but they were also Orthodox or, or what's now called in English, ultra-Orthodox uh, families. But when they either before they leave or when they arrive in the U.S., they start a process of moving away from that kind of religiosity and getting interested in uh, either in lots of political uh, movements, including socialism, communism, Zionism, and so on, that often draw them away from that religiosity. Um, or they, they are just more interested in making a living. And maybe they do consider themselves, you know, they, if you had to press them, they might say, yeah, yeah I'm, I'm traditional, but I only go to shul or synagogue once a year or a couple of times a year. Um, they, like many immigrants in the same period, start to assimilate. 
they uh, take on English. They're often made by the broader society, made to feel ashamed of their immigrant background and speaking Yiddish, uh, for example. And over time, um, they, especially in the post-war period, they start to move into the suburbs and, for lack of a better term, Americanize. Although obviously now we think of that as in a much more complex way that they, than they did uh, uh, back then. Uh, now, the story of, that we talk about in our book is a very, compared to that, a very underappreciated and undertold story. It has a different chronology. It has even different uh, geography, and it involves different people. It involves people who, before World War II, primarily refused to leave Eastern Europe because they considered this country, uh, that is the United States, I know there's people who who are listening to this, aren't from the U.S., uh, the United States, what's called a trefina medina in Yiddish, an impure, unkosher land that could actually contaminate religious Jews who set foot in it or, or certainly who lived in it. And so, and so many of the Hasidim, the members of these pietistic Eastern European Jewish communities, did not come to the U.S. They stayed in uh, Europe. Many of them were murdered, enslaved, uh, 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 and so on during the Holocaust. Uh, small numbers of survivors start to come to the U.S. even during the war, but then after the war, they start to come in larger numbers, and they settle in Brooklyn. Among, among the neighborhoods they settle in is Williamsburg. And rather than Americanizing, meaning giving up the Yiddish, changing their dress, uh, their behaviors, and so on, to become more like other Americans, which at that time is primarily white, Christian, and so on, uh, they double down on their difference. They double down on their difference. In fact, now, difference itself in Judaism going all the way back to the Torah or going all the way back to the Hebrew Bible is uh, a very, very important thing. (laughs) It's very difficult to understate that. So it's not as if they invented the notion that Jews should be different, but they, but they emphasize that and they turn it into, they emphasize that that difference rather than being a mark of shame something you should be ashamed of, should be, it's a sign of what's called Geon uh, Yaakov in Hebrew, uh, the pride of Jacob. That you should be proud of being Jewish and that the Jewish, and that the differences can actually serve as a way of uniting you and strengthening you. And so this is a very different story. Now you might say, well, okay, it is very different in everything you've said. How, quote, relevant is it beyond that? And I would say very relevant in a, in a number of ways. One is that demographically speaking, these are by far the fastest growing Jewish communities, not only in Brooklyn, not only in New York, but in the world. That is communities like this who have, who are, who, 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 who have that narrative that I, that I've described. Not all of them are U.S. Some of them are in Canada, London, Antwerp, Buenos Aires, Israel, and so on. Uh, but many of them share this same, these same kind of approaches and so on. And so uh, and that's just, I mean, I can talk more about it, but even if we just think in the most basic demographic terms, what will Judaism look like in the future? We will have to incorporate this narrative. And, and in the book, we focus on one slice of that narrative, the narrative that takes us to Williamsburg, Brooklyn, um, where in fact, be, which becomes the headquarters of the largest Hasidic uh, group in the world. Um, 
it's very important for us to, for, for anyone who wants to understand Judaism now and in the future to understand this history as well as this, the other history of World of Our Fathers, which is also obviously very important as well. Right. Uh, speaking of Brooklyn, uh, who was Rabbi Yoel Teitelbaum and what was his attitude toward America after the Holocaust? So Rabbi Yoel Teitelbaum, or as he was known to his followers, Rabbi Yoelish, he's the leader, the Rebbe. Rebbe is a term that's used um, uh, in among Hasidic groups to refer to their leaders. Um, so every community will have a Rebbe. Um, and he was the leader of, became the leader of Satmar, of the Satmar Hasidic group. He became the leader in the early part of the 20th century. Um, and he came from the most important Hungarian Hasidic uh, uh, family, dynasty. That's a term that's often used to describe the, 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 the leadership within Hasidic communities because it's often transmitted from father to son or from uh, older um, to, a, to a younger male relative or to a disciple in, in some cases. Um, Hungary was not the center of the Hasidic world in Eastern Europe. It, that was, it was the, the more important leaders tended to come from Poland or white Russia or Ukraine. But, but he did come from the most important Hasidic family, the title bombs in, um, in Hungary. And he himself already, uh, he distinguished himself for his learning, for his asceticism, and also for his political acumen already in Satmar and his willingness to engage in uh, struggles for power and authority and his, desi- and his willingness to do that in order to create the kind of community that he thought was uh, proper from a Jewish point of view already in Eastern Europe. He survives the Holocaust, the whole story in its own right, comes to the United States, to Brooklyn in 1946, and establishes, uh, he comes from, he comes from what was then uh, uh, Palestine. Uh, he was extremely anti-Zionist. He viewed uh, Zion. He, he believed in the Kedusha, the holiness of the land of Israel. And he emphasized that. And, and, he, and he and his followers would talk about how much he loved the land of Israel and so on. But he believed, uh, like, like the vast majority of Haredim, which is a Hebrew term that's often translated as ultra-Orthodox in English, that until the Mashiach, until the Messiah comes, Jews should not establish a nation state in the land of Israel. Um, and therefore, he was opposed to it even before he arrived in the United States. He lived in Palestine very briefly after the Holocaust. And then, depending on who you talk to, there's different, there's different versions of why he left. Um, but he comes to the United States, which apparently initially for what was supposed to be a brief period, but he decides to settle down in the U.S. Like other Haredim, and Hasidim are sort of become a branch of Haredim, but they're not really a branch of Haredim, but let's say under the umbrella of, of the Haredi movement, we might say. Um, he initially views America, like his fellow Haredim, as an as a, as a impure land that can contaminate you, but then he starts to see it as a place of opportunity. And even as the place where he will carry out his mission. And you could say ironically, or in Jewish mystical terms, it, 
it makes sense actually, and, and he and his followers were sometimes portrayed in these terms, that it's precisely in the place that is the least holy, that's the, that is the most contaminated, that one has to go, that, that's, that the certain, a certain individual who has, who is what's called the Tzadik Ador, the, the holy man of his generation, now, there were other Hasidic groups that thought that their leaders were, were also fit this role. And he was in competition with them, actually. One in particular, the, somebody called the Lubavitcher Rebbit. But both of these groups, Lubavitch, which establishes itself in Crown Heights, is another neighborhood in, 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 in North Brooklyn, and Satmar, which establishes itself in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. Both of them believe that their leaders have arrived in the United States in order to carry out a mission that ultimately will help lead to the redemption of the world and the arrival of the Messiah. So the U.S., the America becomes a place of possibility and a launching pad for the redemption. Right, right. And um, speaking of of Brooklyn and Brooklyn geography, you talk uh, a lot of the book has to do with the racial uh, dynamics between the uh, the white um, Hasidic uh, um, members of the Satmar community in Williamsburg and their black and um, Latino neighbors. And you talk about how, uh, in some ways, uh, the Hasidim in Williamsburg were more similar to their black and Hispanic yes. neighbors than they were to uh, the other uh, middle-class Jews in the suburbs. Yes. Uh, why, why was that the case? Or yes. in what ways was that the case? So your question actually brings up two very, very important points. One is that, you know, you describe the Hasidim as white, and then you have the, the black and Hispanic neighbors. I would, one of the things that the book tries to do is complicate the idea that um, the Hasidim, what, what does it mean for them to be white? Um, and, and what does it mean over time? What is their relationship? I, I, in fact, I would say it's, it's unclear whether they're white, if we understand that category as a constructed, as a socially constructed category. Um, it can mean different things also. It could be, do they see themselves as white? Are they seen by, as white by, uh, by their neighbors? Are they treated, do they, do they experience the world the way that, let's say, whites in the suburb or, or even Jews in the suburb do at, in the same period? Or do they experience certain things um, in, much, in much more similar ways to, let's say, their black and, and Hispanic neighbors? Do they, uh, how does the law treat them? You know, is there a single law? When it no, in fact, in the in in the U.S., um, you different groups are are treated, uh, you know, in racial terms uh, differently by di- by different government agencies or by the Supreme Court in terms of certain decisions that are made, and so on. And things change over time. So it, the racialization, I would put it, of the Hasidim, which is a very important part of the book, turns out to be very complicated. Now, the second part, including their relationship to whiteness and including their relationship to their to the to the non-white communities. Uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, alongside of, uh, 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 alongside of whom, with whom they live in, in Williamsburg, which for most of the story that we look at in the post-war period, are the, the majority uh, uh, of their neighbors are Puerto Rican in the south side of Williamsburg, and then some African Americans across and across the border in in, in Bedford Stuyvesant, which is another neighborhood in Brooklyn, actually that sort of separates Williamsburg from Crown Heights, for example. Um, it's Af- large African American community, as well as what what are called in the U.S. white ethnics. So people like Italian Americans, Irish Americans, so on. 
uh, though they in Polish market, though they tend to live in a different part or different parts of, of, of Williamsburg. Now, one of the things that we argue in the book is that in certain key ways, the experience of the Hasidim in Williamsburg, especially in the 60s and 70s, is more similar to their Puerto Rican and African-American neighbors than it is to certainly to the Jews, uh, many of whom by that point are living in the suburbs. How do I, what do I mean? For example, many Hasidim move into high-rise public housing projects. In fact, um, they become the majority in a number of high-rise public housing projects in the early 1960s in Williamsburg at a time when public housing in general, and especially high-rise public housing, was becoming associated in the popular imagination with racialized poverty, meaning uh, many whites moved out precisely in this period because they were ashamed of living in public housing because that was, quote, a place where poor blacks and Latinos lived. And if you were white and you could afford to or or find a way out, you did. Um, Hasidim, they are happy to move into public housing in Williamsburg. In fact, they, as it were, quote, move heaven and earth, as one, as one source from that period said, to get into public housing. Um, that's one thing. Another thing is that under Lyndon Johnson, who was the president um, in, in, of the United States in the mid-1960s, um, there, were a, there were a number of social programs that are initiated to h- help uh, poor people in the United, in the United States. The, the focus of those programs were either uh, whites in Appalachia, or African-Americans in, especially in the Northeast cities like New York, Boston, et cetera, et cetera. But then more broadly around the U.S., they were most definitely not Hasidim living in places like Williamsburg or Crown Heights. However, Hasidim, once they become aware of the existence of these programs, develop a very potent and robust activist culture, which tapped into earlier Jewish traditions of, of communal activism to uh, benefit from these programs, the very same programs that their black and Puerto Rican neighbors are benefiting, benefiting from. And in fact, there's an intense competition for housing and those programs. In addition, Hasidim actively, actively lobbied the U.S. government and the courts all the way up to the Supreme Court to have themselves be designated as a disadvantaged minority group. And in fact, end up being successful in one case with one government agency um, to, 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 to which, and they achieve that status um, under the Reagan administration. So there's a, a variety of ways, and I could go into more, um, but those are just three, in which um, Hasidim uh, participate in, resemble, compete with their um, African-American and, uh, and, and Latino neighbors in ways that really differentiate them from not only, by the way, not only from Jews living in the suburbs, of course, there are Jews who don't live in the suburbs, who live in the city, who are not, but, but many are leaving that period, but also, frankly, from other white, or from white ethnics living in the same neighborhoods, such as Italians living in East Williamsburg and so on. The Hasidim are, are differentiate themselves from them, or are, are different from them as well, in terms of living in public housing in, this, in these kinds of numbers, in terms of uh, participating in these government uh, programs that are often pejoratively described as welfare and, 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 and so on. Um, even the activist class, that is much more similar to the kind of activist class that emerges, especially in African-American neighborhoods like uh, uh, Harlem and Bedford-Stuyvesant in this period. So 
it's quite fascinating. I'll just let's say one more thing that I think is, is very important, and people who spend time in Crown Heights or Williamsburg will note this, or, or they have the opportunity to note it. Maybe they, they don't notice it, but they should, which is that just the kind of being in the world, the urban, just we described in the book, a kind of urban swagger, a comfort being in the city, which, of course, Jews historically in the modern period were, were very urban people, uh, in general, and were urbanized at earlier and greater rates, uh, that's something that Hasidim retained, a kind of comfort. And you see that in speech patterns, you see that in occupying space, you see that in a whole variety of ways, that they're much more similar to their neighbors, non-Jewish neighbors, than to anyone living in the suburbs. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50 percent off right really really uh interesting um given what you were just describing in terms of the competition between the uh, satmer and other hasidim in williamsburg uh, uh between them and yeah. their non-jewish some of their non-jewish neighbors what was the relationship between the hasidim of williamsburg and their black or hispanic neighbors in the early decades after world war ii yeah so um early decades of the of yeah, the, of the yeah. community there right great question so so each, so as I mentioned, you know, there are a number of neighborhoods. I mentioned Crown Heights in, in Williamsburg. There was also Borough Park, um, where another neighborhood in more in, um, in central Brooklyn, where a lot of Hasidim um, from a variety of different places in, in, Crown, in Crown Heights. There were Lubavitchers, in, uh, although there were some other groups that also lived there, but eventually left and Lubavitch stayed. Um, in, in Borough Park, they have multiple groups. Um, and, and in each of these places, the non-Jews who live there come from different backgrounds. In, in Borough Park, there are more Italians, uh, for example. Um, in Crown Heights, it's uh, Caribbean Americans and African Americans. In Williamsburg, it was mainly Puerto Rican, again, with some, with some um, African Americans on, on, on the border. And then on the other side, there were, um, you know, some Italians and, and Poles and, and others, other white ethnics. Um, but in South Williamsburg, which is where the Hasidic community is really centered, the, the main neighbors are Puerto Ricans. They're arriving at roughly the same time in large numbers in Williamsburg and elsewhere in Brooklyn. That's one of the big stories of, you know, the second half of the 20th century in, in New York is the, is the growth of the Puerto Rican uh, community. Very vibrant community. Uh, Williamsburg is one of the centers of, 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 uh, of Puerto Rican life in the city. And so the first part of our book really traces the kind of parallel development of these communities and their interactions. And 
um, people who live in urban neighborhoods that are shared by multiple groups that are working class and, and, and poor, okay, I think will appreciate that um, often the interactions are kind of live and let live. You, you, can, you can live parallel lives. Some spaces tend to be dominated by one group or another. In other times, they're shared. And then there's conflict when the resources, especially during periods of uh, uh, where resources are hard to come by. So all of that stuff happened, meaning there were some, there were some playgrounds that, you know, oh, at this time, this time of day, Hasidic mothers and their children will be there. Oh, at this time of day, Puerto Rican mothers and their children, different times, maybe this part of the playground will be used by one group, part of the other. We go to this store, they go to the other store, da, 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 da. At the same time, though, when it came to basic necessities, the 1960s and 1970s were a time of, of uh, incredible resource deprivation, even what was called planned shrinkage in New York, meaning that as the budget of New York City uh, uh, got worse and worse uh, and the tax base got smaller and smaller, th- there were voices within the city government to, to allow some neighborhoods to basically shrink as a result and to do that by restricting resources to them, by not investing as many resources. What did that mean in practice? It meant Things like housing, it meant policing, it meant public services, garbage collection, uh, all, all these kinds of things. Williamsburg was one of those neighborhoods. It was, it was at one point, I think, the sixth poorest neighborhood in New York. It had the most gangs in, uh, and crime was rising at the same time, not unconnected, of course, to the, to, the, to, the, to the constriction of resources and a whole bunch of other things. And so in this environment, um, it became... Um, what one scholar is called street fighting pluralism, meaning you had to fight for, for resources. And often it was seen as a zero-sum game. Hasidim engaged in that with their neighbors, but they were not alone in that. In fact, some of the, the most intense fighting went on between Puerto Ricans and Blacks in uh, not only in Brooklyn, but especially in uh, northern Manhattan and in the Bronx, between activists for those, for those groups who would get access to these government funds and Hasidim uh, do the same. And um, they also participate in another aspect of this, which is that different groups understand certain blocks as being their turf. And the Hasidim in Williamsburg, after initially experiencing, uh, um, you know, suffering from the, the broader crime wave that, uh, you know, kind of engulfs New York City in that time, um, and you see a lot of in the in the Hasidic press. One of the things we look do in the book is look at um, a lot of newspaper articles from this whole period, meaning from the 1940s up to the present, more or less. And you see in the 1960s and 70s a lot of the Hasidim saying, like in the, in their newspapers, they published at that time a, a, a one Yiddish newspaper called Der Yid, the Jew in English, um, in Yiddish. Um, and they say, like, you know, wh- what are the police going to do? Like, we're, we're all there's all this crime going on, you know, we're the police don't seem to be here. Um, this was also a time when the police was being rocked with a lot of scandals. Um, and eventually they decide to take matters into their own hands and to uh, respond, actually like a lot of different communities in New York, including the African-American one in Fort Greene, which is a neighborhood near Williamsburg, um, by creating community uh, kind of patrol groups or by spontaneously responding 
when a crime occurs or a suspected crime by yelling in Yiddish, chapsim, grab him, and people would run out of their houses and, and grab the, the suspect and, and uh, apprehend them and sometimes beat them up, which of course led to charges of vigilanteism um, by, by their neighbors and to a great deal of tension. Um, they said that they were defending themselves um, if we look at it from a kind of sociological point of view, we might say that um, they were in this other way, in yet another way, participating in the broader kind of cultural norms of the neighborhood, which if you look at New York City and Brooklyn, especially in that period, people were uh, in, in, this, in this time of um, retrenchment of government resources, they would often, as they put it, take the law into their own hands. And the Hasidim are, are do that do that. It surprised a lot of people because there were a lot of stereotypes about Jews and religious Jews in particular that they some of them connected to the Holocaust, but many of them going back far further that they were quote uh, you know passive and that they would would not be violent. But in fact, uh, we see with not only Satmar but other Hasidic groups too a willingness to defend themselves, uh, even up to and including engaging in behaviors that were understood as vigilanteism by others. Right. And how did the police respond to Hasidic efforts at self-protection? The police were in a uh, difficult situation. It, it was difficult for them because they were sensitive to the claims of both communities. And um, both communities had political, different kinds of political and uh, power and, uh, and claims, especially during the Lindsay administration, which was a liberal administration. Mayoral John Lindsay was the, uh, was the uh, mayor of New York in, in for much of the 60s. And, and, and he uh, had been elected through a coalition of African-Americans and progressive whites, many of them Jewish. The Hasidim did not fall into either of those categories. <laughs> <laughs> so, on the one hand, and and there were also there was also a period of awareness of, of uh, you know there there had been um, uh, various riots or uprisings, depending on how one sees them, right? Um, against in in major cities around the U.S., um, including in in New York City in that period, the mid and late '60s, um, the civil rights movement was uh, was very active. There were there were these government programs. Um, so all of that is to say that the, the, the kinds of, um, and, and this was a period also where, where uh, housing discrimination, civil rights legislation was being passed to prohibit housing uh, discrimination, all sorts of various forms of discrimination. So, so on the one hand, you have these kinds of claims and the kind of, um, the kind of political, uh, if not power, then at the very least, um, um, well, you know, claims that, that you can have from the African-American and, and, and the Puerto Rican community, although I don't want to lump those two together because they, they actually have very different histories, you know, characters, trajectories, and so on. So, you know, um, and in certain ways, um, the, the very much the early 70s was a period where the Puerto Rican community in Williamsburg starts to get a political voice for the first time um, in a significant way. Um, 
which also can bring them into conflict with Hasidim over things like the school, um, use, using schools and school spaces and, and housing and playgrounds and so on. Um, but um, the, uh, the, 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 the politics is such that the Hasidim, they see the crime actually, and we see this over and over, through the lens of the Holocaust and through the long centuries of violence against Jews in Eastern Europe and elsewhere. So they make claims on the police and say, you, not only do you need to um, address the, the violence that's being directed against members of our community, but this is something that we've been experiencing for centuries. And by the way, we're suspicious of you, i.e. the police, because where we came from in, in different parts of Europe, the police were not sympathetic to the Jews and actually were often part of the structure that discriminated against the Jews. So you have two <laughs> communities that are, that are, that are, that are uh, suspicious of the police, think that the police are favoring the other for different reasons. Because often the, the, the Puerto Rican and the African-American residents of Williamsburg or the bordering neighbors will say, well, you're favoring these, the Hasidim as Jews and as whites. And the Hasidim will say, well, you're showing favoritism to these other groups because they are benefiting from all of these government programs and civil rights is in the air and so on. And they're non-Jews. And we have a, there's a long history of, you know, they see it through the lens of anti-Semitism. So it's this fascinating thing where these, these different communities that all have histories of, of discrimination against them, that all have these claims against the other, that are suspicious of the police. And then you have the police who are trying to satisfy these different constituencies. Maybe it's Mayor Lindsay's saying certain things from top down, but then you've got the local people who are making different claims. So it's, it, we see from, from that period, I know it's a long answer, but uh, hopefully the, the complexity of it is there, there it's one last thing which is that there are jewish police in williamsburg that are assigned to williamsburg they're not hasidic uh jews who we there's there are accounts from that period where they'll say it's more difficult for us to be jewish police in a jewish neighborhood especially in the hasidic neighborhood than it would be for us to be police elsewhere presumably because that kind of same on the one hand but other on the other hand create created a lot of situations on the ground where maybe the Hasidim treated them differently because they were Jewish, the police, and maybe the police treated the Hasidim. Sometimes it, they say, sometimes there's so, at least some evidence that they may have treated the Hasidim more harshly because they were Jewish, but Jewish in a way that these police, in some cases at least, felt embarrassed about or, or antagonistic towards. Anyway, it's a very important question, one that's really <laughs> <laughs> complicated. <laughs> I, I will just uh, 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 mention that I think um, your answer to, to my last question is, is really indicative of the style of your book in the sense that you don't satisfy yourself with simple answers, that, 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 that your book covers a lot of complex history and history that a lot of people think they know about or assume 
that there's obvious answers to whatever is being discussed. And your book does a, a, a really wonderful job at digging really deep and showing that these uh, issues are much, much more complex than might first um, be imagined. And, and you try to unravel a lot of that complexity. Mm, thank you. Yeah. So um, speaking of complexity, so your book, um, the first um, uh, uh, portion of your book describes the essentially the the arrival of the Satmar community, um, the Satmar Rebbe and 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 his followers in Williamsburg, and how they build up their community um, in that in that location, and um, their attempts to to try to access uh, public. Um, public funding for uh, housing and and other things and then you uh, continue the story um, to when the community when Williamsburg itself goes through major um, transformations with the process of gentrification so first of all when did the gentrification begin in Williamsburg and what was the demographic of the first wave of gentrifiers yeah. in that neighborhood? So, so gentrification really begins in the 1980s. Um, it, it kicks in uh, more strongly in the 1990s. Um, until the 1980s and even into the 1990s, um, a majority of people living in Williamsburg, whether they're Hasidic or uh, Puerto Rican or African American or Polish or whatever, are, are working class. Um, you know, um, there are poor people too. You know, many of them concentrated in, in public housing, which uh, has a has an income you know requirement, um, and and um, and you know it's a very industrial neighborhood. It's one of the most industrial neighborhoods on the water. It's located for those who may not know, it's on the East River. Uh, it's on the waterfront, and so like a lot of waterfront areas, becomes the site of uh, a lot of industrial activity. Uh, it had a lot of famous factories, Domino Sugar Plant, uh, a bunch of other factories. So, uh, guitar factory. Um, um, and so the arrival of it, it, it and, and it's located right across the Williamsburg Bridge from Lower Manhattan and the financial center of New York City and, and arguably the world. So it like it's got good got good uh, location and <laughs> yeah, to say the least. And 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 already in the 60s, 70s, you started to see the gentrification of parts of lower Manhattan, famously the Soho, uh, which become a, becomes a big center for artists and art galleries, and then uh, the East Village. And people start getting priced out of there. They start going over the Williamsburg Bridge, just as, you know, a century earlier, less than a century earlier, Jews had left the Lower East Side because of overcrowding there to come to Williamsburg. This was before the Hasidim arrived. Williamsburg, I didn't mention this, but Williamsburg had a very, very large Jewish community even before the Hasidim started arriving after World War II. Um, and so these, the first people who come over are often artists um, or, or aspiring artists from places like the East Village and Soho, and they settle in um, warehouse and loft spaces um, that are, were formerly industrial or may even be continue. It's parts of the building may continue to house some industry um, in the 1980s, let's say, but part of it is carved out for living space. Now, this is where the Hasidim kind of re-enter the story in another way, because many of those buildings 
in the part of Williamsburg that became gentrified for the parts of Williamsburg, which were the part uh, along the waterfront and then a part of Williamsburg called North Williamsburg, were Hasidim didn't live in those parts, but they owned property in those parts. In many cases, they had bought buildings, either warehouses or garment factories, because this was a site of a lot of the garment industry in New York, from other Jews. When those Jews left the neighborhood, they would sell the buildings to the Hasidim. In some cases, they were partners with other Jews who, you know, there were other Jews who remained. They did, maybe they lived in, uh, you know, Westchester, which is a suburb of New York, but they still can maintain business in Williamsburg. Those Hasidim then become the landlords for this first wave of gentrifiers. And um, it remains that way for a number of years. Very early on, uh, Hasidim in Williamsburg, they don't really have a sense of what this is all going to mean because it's happening outside of their enclave. And it's really something that's known only to those Hasidim, those individual Hasidim that happen to own property and and, and suddenly realize they can rent out or lease out some of their property to, um, to these newcomers. In the 1990s, this kicks in uh, in a big way. And uh, many developers um, and, and uh, real estate brokers, as well as people, most of whom are no longer artists, but people who are attracted to a certain lifestyle um, that comes along with artists often, cafes, bars, music scene, etc., start arriving in Williamsburg. And um, so that's really this, I would say the second wave is really in the 1990s. Already then, they, the prices in Williamsburg, broadly speaking, start going up and start affecting even the Hasidic part, um, which is often accompanied by gentrification. That is, real estate prices tend to go up, not only in those, but not only in the neighborhood itself, but even in adjacent areas. Um, and then those adjacent areas, which have lower, lower, uh, prices in terms of buying and renting, um, there's what's called a rent gap. That is that there's a gap in between the prices in the gentrified neighborhood and the adjoining neighborhood and soon spills out over into the adjoining neighborhood. So now we start seeing different parts of Williamsburg getting gentrified as well as adjoining neighborhoods um, like Greenpoint, for example. Um, Eventually, by the end of the 1990s, the gentrification starts to affect a part of Williamsburg that was primarily Latino, by then Dominican and Puerto Rican, which borders the Hasidic part of Williamsburg. And once that happens, and it arrives at a street called Broadway, not the Broadway in Manhattan, but the Brooklyn Broadway, Hasidim start getting nervous that gentrification is not only going to affect their real estate prices, but gentrifiers themselves are actually going to start competing for housing in their part of the neighborhood. And also that they're going to start influencing by their presence, the life in the neighborhood and especially be a negative influence in a cultural sense on the young people and children in their community. Right. And so how does the the Hasidic community of Williamsburg respond to the what they perceive as this external threat to their uh, the integrity of their community? So it, in a way, it, it, it might seem counterintuitive to some, but 
for most of the history of Hasidic Williamsburg, which preceded gentrification, although there was competition with their uh, Puerto Rican and African-American neighbors over resources, and although there was tension between, let's say, Hasidim uh, 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 accusing uh, or experiencing, in, in fact, um, you know, street crime from some African-Americans and some Puerto Ricans, um, and, and in turn, some members of the, of the Puerto Rican and African-American community accusing Hasidim of vigilantism, so on. In general, in general, they sort of had a, let, a live and let live attitude towards one another and shared the neighborhood. There were ups and downs, etc. There was even a, a, a notable moment when they allied with one another to fight. Uh, the city was going to place a giant incinerator, garbage incinerator in the neighborhood. And and Puerto Rican and black and, and Hasidic activists worked together to fight the city for ultimately successfully so that they wouldn't do that. They were not viewed, the Hasidim did not view their neighbors prior to gentrification as an existential threat, despite whatever conflict and competition. But Hasidim did view, many of them at least, view the new gentrifiers as an existential threat to their community that it might be impossible for Hasidim to continue living in Williamsburg if gentrification transformed the neighborhood in two ways. One, the finances, the money that it became. This was also a period when the Hasidic community had grown tremendously from a few hundred families to tens of thousands of people, and they needed places to live. And they needed places to live because of their way, way of life, that they had to walk to the synagogue, that they had to have certain stores that sold meat that was kosher and, and other supplies that, that had to be prepared in, in certain ways according to the, to the, to the uh, rules and regulations of their community and, and the religious leaders in the community. Um, and they felt really rooted in the community, that this was the place that these Holocaust survivors who had founded the community, who had arrived with nothing, who had established a Kehillah Kedosh, a, a holy community in this place. So they were very attached to it in a variety of ways. Uh, and yet, if you have 10 children and each of them needs, ultimately needs a place to live with their families, where can you find that when everyone, all the housing around it is going up dramatically in cost and it's already saturated within your enclave? So that was the first thing. But the second thing, and equally important, was the idea that the gentrifiers were primarily white, not, not all of them, of course, but white, um, upper middle class or middle class, at least seemingly secular um, that they actually posed a moral threat, a much greater moral threat than, than any of the neighbors previously did. And that, um, in fact, they represented, in part because of their race and in part because of their class, a kind of, uh, a kind of lifestyle that younger Hasidim especially might find appealing. And that, uh, and that over time, especially as it coincided with other changes going on in the, in the Hasidic community in Williamsburg, as well as elsewhere, the internet, the introduction of the internet, what we call in the book the embourgeoisement of the neighborhood, of the community, meaning that even though there were still many, many poor Hasidim, there were a, a growing number of Hasidim, especially those involved in the real estate industry, not coincidentally, who had more money to spend, that they might lose their attachment to Hasidic way of life, which in Satmar in particular had always been anti-materialistic in its ideology, had seen luxury 
as a moral defect, at least in theory. In practice, there was always, you know, struggle <laughs> over that. But in theory, and, and certainly that was the what Rebiolas, their leader, would emphasize. And now, gentrification, along with everything else, brought a kind of conspicuous consumption that I would say, in in terms of the threat, was even seen as probably greater in certain ways than the than the the, the financial one. And so, some activists within the community in the early two thousands waged what they called Milchemes Artist and the the war against the artists, because artist or artist was how they described the gentrifier. They didn't use the term gentrifier. Then they would say artists, basically, to refer to everyone, even though by that point. A lot of the gentrifiers were investment bankers or, you know, <laughs> or media people who worked in media or students or whatever. But anyway, and they tried to prevent members of their community from selling or renting to gentrifiers uh, with some success, but definitely not complete success, ultimately. Right, right. And... Uh, how is the tragedy of 9-11 employed in the war against the artists? Um, so one of the interesting things was that uh, in, in the war against the artists was that it coincided roughly, right, it was just a few years after 9-11, uh, the, the uh, attack on the World Trade Center uh, in particular, which was right across the East River. So from Williamsburg, you can see very easily, right, it's, it's very close. Uh, to what happened. So people witnessed that and experienced the aftermath. And um, Hasidim already had, not only Hasidim, but traditionally, there's a Jewish tradition of seeing current catastrophes or crises through the lens of past ones, going, ultimately going all the way back to what's called Chorban Besamikdash, the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem or the, the two temples in Jerusalem. That's a kind of archetypal or paradigmatic catastrophe that gets kind of re-experienced by in, in different generations. So it, 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 in this case, they saw the gentrification and the threat of gentrification not at, through the lens of the destruction of the World Trade Centers, but also, as it turns out, through the destruction of that, through the lens of the destruction of the Vesa Migdash, of that is of the Temple in Jerusalem, and other catastrophes that had happened over the centuries to Jewish communities. And in all of those cases, they pointed out, when I say they pointed out, they, there were demonstrations, there were broadsides that were posted on walls. It's a very common thing to do in Hasidic neighborhoods or Haredi neighborhoods around the world. You put a, a broadside where you say, you know, people listen. This is happening. We need to take action, etc. As well as in the newspapers, where they um, they said this was due to uh, a, a lack of piety that their own within the community people weren't weren't um, following the kind of the kind of uh, keeping the holiness that their previous generations had. Also, a very common view that previous generations are more holy than the current ones. And, and secondly, that there were basically kind of collaborators within the community, that there were some members of the community that were willing to, as they put it, sell out their community for the sake of money. And that the, the, the solution was for people to double down on holiness and condemn the collaborators as they understood them and prevent them from participating in the community by threatening them with things like, if you sell to gender fires, we are going to prevent your kids and grandkids from 
going to our community schools, for example. Right. Wow. Uh, very, um, very uh, uh, kind of harsh measures mm -hmm. to try to stem this tide of gentrification. Um, all right. Uh, a last question. Um, what ways has gentrification changed Hasidic Williamsburg and what ways has it not? Yes. So one of the ways that gentrification has most dramatically changed it is that, um, and, and this is, this is not, I mean, it's, it's part of the gentrification story, I would say, is that Hasidim themselves engaged in an expansion of the neighborhood. They expanded the neighborhood into parts of Brooklyn that were previously not Hasidic, uh, not part of their enclave that had been that, that are parts of uh, Bedford-Stuyvesant Clinton and Clinton Hill, which are neighborhoods that, that, that historically have bordered Williamsburg, which had large um, African-American uh, Latino populations, or in the parts that the Hasidim expanded into that were heavily, that were more industrial um, and had commercial rather than uh, residential um, uh, real estate. Um, and, and, the, and they did that by buying up properties in those areas and redeveloping them. Now, are they gentrifiers in those cases or not is a really, is a really interesting question um, and one that's like a lot of the questions that are asked and explored in this book, you know, it's, it's, it's complex because, if, you know, on the one hand, they, they, they have, um, they, there's a lot of real estate development going on. Some of the real estate development that's going on is for, for you know, pretty expensive condominiums, but it's also the case that many of the Hasidim that move into what's what becomes known as New Williamsburg are uh, receive Section Eight, which is a, a government um, uh, subsidized. At a certain point, the the federal government more or less got out of the got out of building new housing projects and instead gave um, people who would otherwise qualify for public housing vouchers to be used to subsidize their um, their rents. Um, in addition, Hasidim had a long presence in Bedford Stuyvesant. Jews in general did, Hasidim did, um, and and um, so they're not coming from you know outside of the neighborhood in the same way. So that that you know that's a very that's one aspect of this that that continues to be uh, to unfold because the New Williamsburg has has tr expanded dramatically. It's one of the most dramatic neighborhood transformations in New York since the White Flight of the 1960s, but most people in the city don't even know that it's happened unless you go to that part of Bedford-Stuyvesant. So that's one thing. At the same time, Williamsburg, what's now called Old Williamsburg by some, is really ringed by not only um, the kind of gentrification that took place in the 1980s and 90s, which was relatively small scale, but in, increasingly by very large scale luxury developments, especially along the waterfront in buildings that in many cases had been owned by Hasidim um, and were used for industrial purposes, um, have now been bought by some of the biggest real estate uh, developers in the city and in some cases uh, internationally, whether it's the Netherlands, China, etc. So uh, international money is now coming in and developing parts of Williamsburg that just a few decades ago were literally, 
you know, there, there were places that where, where people were applying this, you know, the sex trade, where drugs were being dealt, where, uh, where you know, the, 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 the amount of money paid for square footage was, you know, unbelievably low compared to what it, what it became. And so it's ringed by that. But if you go into old Williamsburg itself, it almost has, especially compared to what's going around it, on around it, including in New Williamsburg, it has like a, a, a almost like a old fashioned, I don't know how to describe it exactly, like a quaint, you know, feel to it. Because it's, it's so much calmer and quieter than everything going on around it that it's it, it it's changed too though i shouldn't say that don't get the impression it hasn't changed because even within the you'll you'll now find health food stores and you'll find on the main lee avenue which is the main uh business district you'll find new stores that have new signs some built some businesses are like 50 years old and they have new signs that look like you know more chic kind of or shishi kind of businesses you'd find elsewhere so they've also been influenced but on the side streets, you can still get a taste of, you know, the, the kind of the more old school Williamsburg, I would say. Right. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to share your thoughts with us today. Thank you very much, Salman. I appreciate it. And thank you, listeners. Uh, that concludes our program. Thanks for listening and have a great day. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.